everyone. Welcome to Backstory Sessions. I'm your host, Matt. We hope you enjoy this episode. Hey everybody, it's Kat, and I want to welcome you to this episode of Backstory Sessions. I'm joined today by my co-host, Matt. Hey, Matt. Hey, Kat. Hey, everyone. How are you? So, it's a big episode here with the songwriter. Yeah, again. uh, We've had some pretty good ones on before, and uh, this one is no different. I know. We really, you know, I love songwriters because... Um, they just are my kind of people, and I love hearing the backstories of these songs that they've written. Well, see, I would have guessed that rappers were your kind of people. Well, they write songs too, you know. I yeah, mean, it, yeah. it seem easy just because they rhyme, but you know, when you try to make a serious rhyme, it's uh, you know, it can be challenging, and right, yeah, and then beatboxing and. All that. Yeah. You know, it makes it challenging. Yeah, very. Um, so we did a poll. Our um, songwriter today is interview is going to be, our guest is going to be Kent Blazy. And uh, he's had a lot of success. So we did a poll in our Backstory Sessions group. And... Uh, you want to guess which was the top song? What are my choices? Okay, um, well, I'll give you the top three um, from the group. Okay. okay. Um, Mama Love Papa, okay. The River, and If Tomorrow Never Comes. Uh, these are all Garth Brooks songs. Yes, because Kent Blasey has written... You know, a lot of songs for Garth Brooks. Oh, okay. So, uh, let's see. I'm going to guess it's, um, hmm, The River. Yes, you know, I almost, I really did think that could be the one. But um, If Tomorrow Never Comes uh, was the top choice. And I guess I can see that, too. Uh, But The River is... You know, it's one. Well, all of these songs are just very, very great and fascinating. So mm-hmm. it was a hard choice, I'm sure, for the people that voted. Yeah, I was going to say the other one as well, but uh, for some reason, I thought the river might come on top. But yeah, well, you know, we got a strange group there. They don't always vote the way they need. <laughs> yeah, strange but loyal. Yes, and we love them, of course, no matter how they vote. Right. (laughs) But, I mean, how neat it is to be able to write songs, one, and then to have Garth Brooks perform your songs and make hits, you know, mega hits out of them. Yeah, that's got to be pretty cool. Yeah, and, you know, might as well throw in there, too, that, um, you know, Kent has a Kentucky connection. Really? What's at, that? At, well, he he spent, uh, you know, some of his youth growing up in Kentucky, so. Really? 
Yeah, I don't think he was born here, but um, you know, he's a. We're gonna claim him here in Kentucky. So. <laughs> okay. I mean, well, maybe you know. maybe he won't be so happy about it, but you know. <laughs> well, I you know may not tell him that part. But then again, he may say, yeah, you know, Kentucky feels like home to me. Who knows what he's going to say? That is true. Yeah. But I'm excited to uh, just to hear the backstory. So, okay, since you picked the river, um, what do you think a possible backstory might be that would inspire that song? And we'll see to see, you know, if hmm. right. Let's see. What would inspire that song? Um, probably someone who, well, I don't know about inspiration, but like, I mean, I guess the thought process would be like, just keep doing what you're doing and, um. Till the river runs dry. Yeah, yeah. And then you'll, you know, you'll eventually find what you're looking for, I guess. I don't know. Or not drown, you yeah, know. Yeah, could be. I mean, if the river runs dry. I mean, you know, you could like um, die of dehydration should the river run dry and you don't have any water. Mm, that's true. I don't know. Just throwing that out there, Kent. Um, you know, you might want to consider that if you. Uh, Do you know what the story is? I don't. So uh, oh, I'm. Okay. Okay, well, I'm really curious to see, you know, if Kent mentions that, um, what, what the, uh, you know, how close you got there in your thinking. So, yeah, yeah, I don't know. It's the, you know, the fun of it, just wondering what is the backstory? Because, you know, when you and I write and have written together, you know, there's generally a backstory and, uh, some are, you know, more entertaining than others, uh, or more memorable. Yeah. But we we generally have one. Usually, yeah. I mean, they're like usually it's uh, some idea that came out of a conversation that we've had. I mean, even like podcast ideas come from that as well. Well, and I mean, I feel like this would be a good time to mention my songwriting skills, you know, as demonstrated on, was it episode one of this season? Oh, yes, that's right, with uh, Risha. Yeah, and you got to hear, like, how that backstory came to be. <laughs> yeah, in real time, actually, because... Uh... Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So then you go less than, a, you know, real, I mean, it took less than a week I had to get that song written and Risha to record that and, you know, have it ready Yeah. for the next week's podcast. So that is a backstory in itself. Have you written any other ones? Uh, I've written several other songs, um, but not in relation to the podcast or, right. you know thing that we've said on the podcast have so. you recorded any of them or like yes back in the day i was part of a little duo oh that's Rose. right yes you and arts and uh, yeah i remember now uh, so i wrote i wrote all of that all of those songs hmm. um but you know also for my play that's published may i have your attention please 
Uh, when we for, uh, filmed the movie version of that, I also wrote a theme song for that, which I'm I'm really proud of that song. Wow, um, I did not know that. Yes, I know. I'm not <clears throat> so surprising sometimes. A movie version. Yes, yes. Uh, we actually, um, that movie version, uh, now this was with high school students, mind you. Right. But um, filmed it. Um, we had Christian Haunt's great talent, uh, who also uh, was interested in filmmaking. And then we were able to have a, a showing at the Tri-County Cineplex in Corbin, Kentucky. Wow. So you actually could go there and watch. May I have your attention, please, as a movie? Huh, I didn't know that. I, yeah, I don't know how I didn't tell you that. But yeah. anyways, there's the backstory for that song. I mean, I really just created this song out of necessity pretty much like the play right yeah. but you know it's not it's a deeper meaning uh, like if you listen to my he said no song you know that's more fun and um yeah you know with a twist kind of but um may i have your attention please um it has a deep meaning and um you know definitely addresses people that maybe you're uh, feeling like nobody cares about them or their life doesn't matter and uh goes along with the play of you know this the character deciding if he wants to commit suicide or not so we won't really uh talk a lot about what happens there but just that was um yeah that's probably my favorite song that i've written huh i didn't outside know. he said no of course well you know? yeah yeah of course yeah yeah Hmm. So there you have it. Uh, you know, next week we got uh, Father's Day and your birthday to look forward to on Sunday. So oh, that's right. Yeah, and it's coming yeah. up. I just thought I would tell everyone, you know, so that you can get those <laughs> presents and the well wishes coming in for you. All right, seven more shopping days. That's right. I'm I'm on it. So <laughs> yeah. All right, let's see what Kent Blazy has to say about the river. So we'll know if you were right or not. All right, sounds good. Here we go. Hey, Kent Blazy, I want to welcome you to Backstory Sessions. We are so honored to have you as a guest today. Well, and I'm honored to be your guest today. Works both ways, you know. Well, and that is to everyone's advantage when it's win-win. So, exactly. um, this is, I guess, February was the 36th anniversary of um, writing If Tomorrow Never Comes. Oh, no, don't tell me that. seems like it's been <laughs> 20 years or whatever. Well, see, so that's what I was thinking. Like, Matt and I, we, we have this discussion a lot because... On his radio, um, he listens to the oldie station, and like these songs are coming on that didn't seem to be that old. So, um, <laughs> you know, my first question is just kind of not that serious, but you know, do you think of it as an oldie because it's been 36 years? You know, I really don't. Um, and I guess it's because when I'm going out and playing these songs for people, the, the stories that I hear from people after the the, the audience is uh, having a meet and greet about how it's touched people's lives, you know, as close as uh, 
maybe a week ago or something. Somebody used it in a wedding. Somebody sang it at a funeral. Um, so it just it's like it's a living, breathing thing to me that is is timeless in a sense. Yeah. And, you know, it's one of those songs, too, like that you mentioned, you know, you would think of that as being like two, you would need two really opposite songs. But this song you could use for a funeral. You could use it for a wedding uh, and, you know, a lot of things in between. So um, I, I guess we, of course, want to hear the backstory of how did you write this timeless song? How did you meet Garth Brooks? Well, it's an interesting way that I did. I had a demo studio in Nashville, Tennessee. And um, in Nashville, if you write a song and you're a songwriter, you want to get a really good demo of your song to pitch to producers and artists and record labels and stuff like that. So you want to get a really good band together, but you also need these people called demo singers who sing really good. And my demo singers, when I had my studio, were Faith Hill, Martina McBride, Joey Diffie, Randy Travis, Trisha Wood, and none of these people could get record deals. Wow. So back in the day, that's kind of how you got heard by record labels. If you were a singer, you sang on people's demos that would be heard by the producers and record labels. And so Garth was cleaning churches and selling boots when I met him. And he wanted to be a demo singer, and he brought me over a cassette. You guys probably don't remember what cassettes are, but uh, <laughs> that looked like an iPhone, but smaller, you know. And uh, he played me six songs, and I said, hey, I love what you're doing. I had to start using you on demos. And um, when he was leaving, he said, well, I write a little bit, too. And so I thought to myself, okay, this kid's cleaning churches and selling boots. I guess I'll write with him. And uh, so we set up a writing appointment, and um, when we get together to write in Nashville, it'd be like Kathy would bring in some ideas, and Matt would bring in some ideas, and I would bring in some ideas, and hopefully somebody would like somebody's idea, and we could turn it into a song. So I was getting some ideas together to show this kid that I knew nothing about, and I was sitting on my couch in the living room, and he came walking in. And he stood up above me, and he's pretty tall, and he said, I've got this idea I've run by 25 riders, and nobody likes it. And I looked up at him, and I said, gee, thanks. <laughs> he kind of got a little testy, and he said, well, well, don't you want to hear it? And I said, yeah, play me what you got. And so he played me what he had, and, and I said, I love this idea. It's what my mother used to tell me about, tell the people you love how you feel about them while they're still alive. And he said, well, what's wrong with it? And I said, you're killing somebody off in the first two lines of the song. And it's like killing off the star of the movie in the first three minutes. There's really nowhere to go. So we, uh, so he said, well, what would you do? And I told him and we did it. And so by the end of the day, we had a song and we really liked it. And so Garth went up into my studio and sang a guitar vocal of it, which that can't be too bad. And we pitched it around town for about a year and nobody was interested in the song and nobody was interested in him. All the record labels passed on him. And one guy said, can you imagine a DJ saying the name Garth on the radio? It sounds like <laughs> they're, they're gargling or something, you know? And so uh, one night uh, he got to sing one song at the Bluebird Cafe. Another artist who was going to do a showcase didn't show up. And they called Garth kind of as a replacement and said, can you come sing one song? 
And he went in and he sang the song and somebody from Capitol Records was in the audience to hear the other guy. And he came up to Garth afterwards and said, hey, maybe we missed something. Why don't you come back in? And he went back in and got a record deal. And If Tomorrow Never Comes was his second single and his first number one. So kind of a magical story about Nashville, Tennessee. Well, it makes me wonder, so you named off those demo singers, and I mean, that's a lot of talented people there. Um, and obviously, Garth was talented as well, um, but but they hadn't made it yet. So, you know, had this singer not shown up and Garth got called in to perform the song that night and the Capitol Records guy, you know, been in the audience, like, it seems that, you know, how much of the business is talent and and getting your break? How much of it is just luck of things happening like that? You know, every story is different, but it's like everything that you just mentioned, if you can have on your side, um, you have a better chance of something happening. You know, it takes uh, being at the right place at the right time and having a little bit of luck. And, you know, some of the stories I hear from some of my friends about who they met the first day they were in town, like uh, Philip White that I do a lot of shows with. The first day he was in town, he was in Shoney's getting something to eat and met this kid, Blake Shelton, who just moved to town that day too. And they got to be friends. And Philip ended up with his first number one because he ended up with the Shoney's the same day as Blake Shelton when they both moved to town. <laughs> That's so, so crazy. It's that kind of thing. And, um, you know, back in the day, when we um, when we still had music row and they hadn't torn half of it down, you could just walk from one place to the other and no telling you might run into Tim McGraw or you might run into Reba McIntyre or you might run into one of their song pluggers or people that listens for songs and they say, hey, Reba's cut next week. You got anything for him? And, you know, that's kind of changed because the row really doesn't exist anymore like it used to. And everybody's kind of in their little little group with little handlers and it's harder to get to people than it was 20 or 30 years ago it was just kind of a magical spot at the time yeah it sounds like it and and i love those stories of you know how people and fates or whatever you want to call it just like seem to line up um but you didn't grow up in nashville so let's talk a little bit about that um you were born in Woodstock, is that correct? I was born in Woodstock before Woodstock was Woodstock. <laughs> wow. And, well, uh, I'm sure it was like sinking in, you know, like backwards that you're going to be talented. You're going to absorb like all of this. About Woodstock, even back then, it's always been an artist community. And uh, Hudson Valley painters were kind of based out of there that were real famous in the uh, turn of 18th, 19th century. And, uh, you know, actors would come up from New York City to do acting in the playhouse there or just to get away from New York City. So when I was a little kid, I would go to people's houses and somebody would be working on a big painting. And, you know, that had an impression on me. Or I'd meet somebody who had just published a book and they'd go, hey, I just wrote this book. You want me to autograph it to you? And I thought, well, that's a pretty cool way to make a living. And uh, I think that sunk in right from the very beginning for me and my sister because she ended up becoming an artist and a photographer, and I ended up being a songwriter. So 
I think those years in Woodstock had a big thing to do with thinking beyond a nine to five job is the only possibility for uh, making a living. So um, were your your parents or outside of your sister, and did you come from an arts family, a talented group? No, not at all. (laughs) I don't know where that came from, but the thing I can say is our parents were very encouraging for us to pursue things like that. And, um, you know, my dad worked at IBM for 30 years, and he was one of those people that worked his way up through the organization but he always told me go do what you love don't go do what I do and um, you know that's encouraging when your dad tells you something like that and I had so many friends that I was in bands with or whatever in Lexington Kentucky where we moved to and they wouldn't let their kids play because well you're just wasting time with music you know you're just going to get in trouble and uh, you know there's no money to be made in it so forget about it so there's a lot of people way more talented than me back in Lexington, Kentucky, who never took the chance to come to Nashville. And um, I always thought, well, it's only four hours away, so I can go home if I have to. It's not like <laughs> moving out to L.A. or something. So, uh, you know, that's what I ended up doing. I got two or three different people telling me I needed to be down in Nashville, and so I listened to them. And I think it turned out okay. Well, as you're growing up in Lexington then um, and playing in bands and so forth, um, you know, are, are you a guitar player? Are you a singer? Are you a songwriter? I mean, which one of these happens first to you? Like, which talents do you notice? Well, you know, I first kind of started out, I guess you would call it being a poet, and I got some things published like in the high school newspaper and high school yearbook and um so that was kind of cool you think well somebody must like what i'm doing a little bit to get them published and so when i did get a guitar the first thing i started doing rather than trying to learn other people's songs was putting music to uh the the poems that i'd been writing and then i took off from there and um playing in bands just being a rhythm guitar player and they got really good guitar players then the lead guitar player quit and they said okay you're the lead guitar player now <laughs> so I had to up my game real quick and uh, then the singer quit so they said okay you're the singer and so before <laughs> I knew it I was kind of the leader of a band playing lead guitar and singing and um, see how that fate worked again <laughs> exactly <laughs> um, well there's I, so many- yeah, there's so many things like that. It's like, I don't know, some people call them little God nods or something where you're just about ready to give up and some other thing happens that keeps you going. And, you know, I've had a whole lot of those. And um, it's just that thing, well, I, I must be doing what I'm supposed to be doing because I keep getting nudged along even when it seems like nothing's moving at all. And uh, I'm very grateful for that. And so what was the first song that you wrote? Like when you crossed over from poetry to thinking, okay, maybe I'll write a song. Like, did you just come up with an idea or were you purposely trying to write that first song? Or Yeah, I was purposely trying to write. Uh, you know, I started listening to uh, all the people in the 60s that were writing their own songs. And then, you know, a big influence was Bob Dylan because um, he was everywhere at that time. And uh, 
I, it's funny because I was a rock and roller who played electric guitar, and it's still my main love. But I think the first couple songs I wrote were country songs. And um, somebody who had a studio in Lexington heard some of them and was very encouraging to me to keep writing songs. And, um, you know, he pitched them to people in Lexington and a couple people ended up recording them. And so it was all kind of positive feedback that I must be doing something right that is catching other people's ears. And it was kind of like the same of getting your poems published. It's like, okay, somebody likes what I'm doing. So I think I'll keep doing it. And so what was the first song about? Um, I think the title of it, I can still remember it. It's, it was called Cry to Me, and it was about a relationship, you know, uh, where if you've got something going on, don't hold it in. You know, come tell me what's going on, and, you know, I can and help either fix it or at least hear what's bothering you. And I don't know, it was very, very mature for an immature <laughs> like how did I come up with that? I don't know. But, uh, uh, was it a personal experience? Were you drawing from some type of relationship you were going through, or no? I was actually. I don't think I really had much of a relationship uh, to draw anything from at the time. <laughs> but um, it was probably something I either saw on a TV show or on a movie or something like that because. They always say that's a good place to get ideas for songwriters is watch movies and read books. And I was a voracious reader. You know, I read everything I could get my hands on. And part of it was to help develop my idea on how you write things that people pay attention to. You know, how you plot things out, how you describe things. And um, so I was just reading books as fast as I can, trying to see what people were doing as far as how do you make this work? How do you write a book? How do you keep people interested? And how can I make that work in my songs? And so that was, I think, a big influence on probably that idea and writing it. I probably had read about it somewhere or, you know, about a husband and wife having troubles and um, trying to let her understand that you understand what she's going through and you're there to help rather than, uh, you know, keeping it all bottled up inside. Yeah, I would imagine like with a song like that, that the relationship pool might pick up a little bit because, you know, that's um, a song I think that would appeal to uh, women to hear. And so was it when you played it for your friends or who who did get to hear it first? You know, I played it. Uh, of course, you always play it for your mom and she loves everything you do. Yeah. Uh, but I, my friends and actually... Uh, I was in a band by that time, so our band started playing it out when we would go play and people would hear it. And yeah, you know, the dating potential went up a little bit when you could <laughs> sing a song like that. And actually, just being a guitar player, you know, oh, uh, and the lead singer. <laughs> yeah, and the lead singer. So there you go. Uh, it it was one of those things you go, oh, this might be a, a pretty good little thing to be doing. <laughs> Fate has smiled on you for sure. Yeah. I agree with that. We, we've heard that drummers get all the women. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, it all depends. I, I've seen <laughs> the drummers get all the women, the lead singers get all the women, the bass player gets all the women. You know, not so much the lead guitar player. I don't know what, what it is about that. Uh, in fact, I, I started playing bass for a while. Because of that. <laughs> yeah. 
the truth reveals. Right? I think the women like the low end, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I found it interesting. Very white singer, you know. It's the, the low voice. Right, you know? yeah. Um, I, I saw that you had listed some five songs that shaped you. So I was curious... Um, before we go over and go through them, um, do they shape you like in, from the perspective of a songwriter or like is on a more personal level or both? I think on both. Um, you know, growing up, I was lucky that we had things called vinyl records, you know, and um, I would just read everything that everybody did on every record you know i i tried to learn all the people that had been uh, the players on the record all the people that had written songs on the records and just it was to me it was like when i was a little kid i loved baseball cards and statistics that were on the baseball cards and so i think that came in to me just drinking up everything i could about everybody that was making the music that i really liked and that just really helped as far as developing me and seeing what I liked and who played on stuff and who wrote the songs. And um, it kind of made me what I was at the time. It was because now you can go to Google and YouTube and find out anything you want about anybody. But at that time, we just kind of had to plug along and, and see who was doing what. But um, it was a great way to do it. And now with download music or whatever, it's really hard to even know who played on it or who produced it or who wrote it and uh but you can get it instantaneously yeah kind of a trade-off i guess of uh, one benefit for another right well let's talk about these songs because uh these are well at least i don't know if i because i hadn't really thought until i saw the list that you had made about you know songs that have shaped me but um certainly i've got some songs on this list I love but them, Mr. Tambourine Man Bob Dylan so what is it about that song that has impacted or shaped you well in kind of my age group it was the Beatles that pretty much got every boy wanting to play guitar and it wasn't that for me it was Mr. Tambourine Man that a 12 string guitar on it that a guy by the name of Roger McGuinn played and I had never heard a sound like that. And it wasn't the regular electric guitars like the Beatles had or all the other people. It was that 12 string guitar on Mr. Man that made me think, I wanna do that. I wanna create that. I wanna make music like that. So that was really the first song that inspired me to really think about making music my career. Well, the next one, Don Henley. I love Don Henley. Um, I do too. So I probably would have chosen End of End of the Innocence um, if I was thinking of songs that shaped me. But uh, The Heart of the Matter is also a great song. So uh, how did, what is it about that song? I think that's probably one of the best songs I've ever heard about a relationship ending and the true feelings about what the people went through, uh, where they're at now. And um, it really, as the title says, it gets to the heart of the matter of 
being able to look back on something and see how good it was, how bad it was, but still being grateful for whatever it was. And he really yeah. never that. Even if you don't love me anymore. <laughs> right. I mean, but that's okay. It's like, I understand, um, you know, thought of all the trouble and the bad luck we went through. And it's like, sometimes you just get to the point where it's like, okay, this isn't working anymore. We got to do something different. And um, usually it's one person who says it uh, and the other person doesn't want it to change. But sometimes you are in a place where you can see that for both people, it's going to be better off down the road. Well, uh, I'm going to have to re-listen to that song. Um, but, you know, it won't be a problem because I do love Don Henley a lot. All right. I also love this next song, and I play it every year at least once. But um, Olden and Dan Fogelberg. Well, that's, to me, one of the best written songs. Of, uh, it's almost like watching a movie when you're listening to this. And some of the, the lines that he uses about being in the frozen foods and it's like nobody <laughs> puts frozen foods in a song but it's a <laughs> song of running into your old lover and um just nailing that whole feeling of what it was like and it's a little bit like heart of the matter where you know you ran into him again and you remember how great it was but you just realize we both moved on and what we had we probably could never have again and uh so it's old Lang Syne. And, uh, you know, Dan Fogelberg to me is one of the most underrated uh, songwriter artists that were out in that period of time. And I wish that uh, more people knew about him because he, he's right up there with me, with James Taylor and, you know, all those people that uh, get accolades all the time, like Paul Simon and all that. Dan Fogelberg, right up there with him. Well, definitely another favorite, and uh, so we're doing well here, like, and imagine, okay, so you mentioned the Beatles uh, early on, um, but what is it about Imagine and John Lennon? You know, that song, it's one of those songs that just, like I was talking about, If Tomorrow Never Comes, has a life of its own, where when it came out, it almost seemed like a lot of people didn't like it because it, it seemed like it didn't include God in it or whatever. Uh, but as time goes on and the world keeps changing, um, more and more people think, boy, what he said would really be a nice thing if the world could be like that. It's kind of like Garth's song, We Shall Be Free. When it came out, it got banned. And, uh, you know, it was pretty sad that that happened. And then it comes out where Obama's using it for his... Uh, inauguration and then joe biden used it for his inauguration and so that song's taken on a whole new life as society changes and there's different views on things and to me that's what uh imagine is it's a it's a timeless song because of that and the last one of these five songs that shaped you unanswered prayers which i also love so garth brooks and so what is it about that? You know, it's such a, the, that song is so amazing in so many different ways. It's like everybody's been in that experience, I think, um, where you run into your old lover. And, you know, here we are, what is that, three songs that we've talked about that <laughs> running into your old lover. 
running into somebody who knows your old lover. So I, I think I'm going to have to look at that more as far as <laughs> but, um, so thanks for that. But uh, it's just that song is a perfect song about uh, I thought I ha wanted what I wanted, and now that I look back, I realize I'm way better off now. It just took me this long of time to get to it. And then the other thing that I love about that song, nobody else has done that I know of in country music. After the, I think it's the first chorus, instead of going into the next verse in a chorus, they go to a bridge. And it just came out of the blue that they go to this bridge and then they go to the chorus. And um, not very many people would be brave enough to do that. But um, it was such a well-written song that it just drew you in so much that it didn't matter how it was written. It mattered what it meant to you when you heard it. And Gar says when they played that the first time at the Bluebird Cafe, he and Pat Alger had just written it that day. And after they got through the first course, they got a standing ovation on the song. And I don't know if that ever happens much at the Bluebird, but doesn't happen to me so <laughs> well and very well written too i mean wow that must have been like validation for sure oh yeah definitely they knew it had something and uh boy it's so great to just go to one of garth's concerts and hear them singing friends of your song you know so loud that garth stops and uh that's one of those songs that people really resonate with and sing at the top of their lungs when he does it. And it's just so cool to watch, hmm. especially if you're over in a foreign country like Ireland or England and, and you yeah. go, these people know our songs better than we know. Them. Yeah. <laughs> I'd love, cool. yeah, I can imagine that experience. That would be really interesting to, to hear that and hear your work. And, and let's talk about your work. So uh, I pulled a few of the songs because you, you've had like a lot of number ones and you're in the songwriting hall of fame and, you know, so you had and continue to have a really strong career. So let's, let's talk a little bit about some of these and the backstory. So, um, you know, the first one I pulled out was getting you home, uh, the black song. Um, so with Chris Young. So, um, what is, how'd that come to be? What's the backstory? Well, it's got a really interesting, cool backstory. Um, I had met this kid, uh, he was a kid when I met him 20 years ago. His name was Corey Batten. And, uh, I had been looking for a writer to sign and I'd listened to probably a hundred CDs from different artists and writers that were looking for a deal. And I heard something in him that was just different. And he reminded me of a young guard. So we started writing together, and he's a really good-looking kid. He sings really good. He writes really good. So he wanted a record deal like everybody does. And so we started doing showcases and playing for record labels and producers, and Sony Records was interested in him. So we set up a meeting with one of the A&R people, and uh, we went and played his project. And I knew she wasn't into it because she was watching The Worst 100 Hurricanes in the last hundred years at the same time and uh so so cory was a little disappointed when we left the meeting but when we were leaving one of the other a r people came up to me and she said hey i've got this guy i'm working with chris young he's had out three singles they haven't done anything 
and if he doesn't have a hit, he's going to be gone. Would you write with him? So I said, sure, I'll be glad to. And, of course, Corey's standing right there. I said, well, can I bring Corey in? She said, well, I don't care what you do as long as you get with Chris. So we set up a time to write with Chris. And um, it was one of those days that songwriters dread because nobody liked anybody else's ideas. And so if you and I and Matt stared at each other for like an that's what it would be like. And so <laughs> I noticed Corey was starting to sweat and get nervous. And it was like, it's so hard to get with an artist these days, and especially one that needs a hit. So I said, well, wait a minute. Let, let me find something. And so I had a, my voice memos. And about six months before, Corey, who's a starving songwriter, like every songwriter, I would get where I would feed him lunch. And I would feed him organic hot dogs, which I know is an oxymoron. But, um, I would fix him hot dogs, and so he got really good at getting the relish and the mustard and everything out of the refrigerator. And one day he had his head in the refrigerator, and he was singing, All I can think about is getting you home. And I said, Corey, what is that? He said, I don't know. I just made it up. So I said, Here, make it up in my phone. <laughs> so here we are with Chris. We've got no ideas. And I said, well, let me find this one idea that maybe would work. And so I played it before, just that little Corey in the refrigerator thing. And Corey said, I love that idea. And I said, yeah, it's yours. And uh, Chris said, well, we don't have anything better to write. Why don't we write that? So we started writing a song, and we got to uh, walking through the front door. And nobody could think of what rhymed with door that was clean. <laughs> and so we sat there for a while, and I said, well, how about seeing her black dress hit the floor? And I thought it was a good line, you know, and uh, they turned on me like vipers. And wow. dirty old man. And I said, I won't argue that. And Chris said, I want to get on the radio, not kicked off the radio. Said, okay, so you two come up with something better. And they didn't. And so I fixed them organic hot dogs. <laughs> and Corey was looking around the room, and I'd had three or four songs that had done pretty good that had been risque, and he said to Chris, you know, he's had pretty good luck with risque songs, and Chris said, well, we haven't come up with anything, so let's put it in there. So we put it in there, and we finished the song that day, and Chris did a guitar vocal at the house, and he took it down to RCA, and they loved the song, and they called me up and said, we love this, we're going to cut it on Chris, if it turns out good good it's going to be his first single and so sure enough the next week they called up the first single but we want to change one thing and i said okay what do you want to change and they said well we love the title getting you home but in parentheses we want to call it the black dress song so i felt like the dirty old man got vindicated <laughs> that his uh his idea got on the title of the song and then when it became a number one song people knew it as the black dress song and they were throwing black dresses up on the stage for Chris and all kinds of crazy things like that. So, I bet he's glad he listened to you then, of course. Yeah, I think he's pretty glad he listened to me. Mm -hmm. um, that's not bad when you got people throwing black dresses on the <laughs> on the stage for you. You know, it's kind of an Elvis Presley thing. But uh, yeah, it was just one of those crazy things of trying to catch uh, lightning in a bottle, and you know. Gar's kind of the same way. You can be working on a song with him, and he goes in the other room and starts singing something else, and I'll go in there and go, well, what is that? He said, I don't know. I'm making it up, and I'll say, okay, well, let's make that up. And so we've had two or three songs recorded like that that just came out of nowhere. 
but it's just keeping your eyes and ears open to what's going on all the time. Hmm. Well, uh, sort of a different song, but maybe or maybe not. I don't know. But um, uh, why ain't I running? Um, what inspired that? Is that so, it? so when Garth started singing demos for me, I kept telling him about this girl that I had that was my favorite demo singer. And um, he said, well, I've got a girl that I use. I don't need to meet anybody else. And so I kept working on him. He'd come over to sing or to write. And I'd say, hey, I got this girl. No, I don't want to meet her. on for like six months. And he's real stubborn. And I'm real stubborn. So I wrote a song where he and Trisha Yearwood had to come in and sing on the same mic at the same time. And oh. And so the minute they started singing, they could just tell, even though their voices were so different, they just blended really well together. So when they got done, Gar said to Trisha, well, what do you got going on? She said, I got nothing going on. I'm a secretary at a record label, and I'm working at the Country Music Hall of Fame. And he said, well, if I get my record deal really taken off, I'll help you get a record deal. I'll put you out on the road if you get a manager. And so he did all that. And uh, so 10 years later, he comes to me and he says, I want to write a song about falling in love with Tricia. And of course, I want you to write it with me. And so that's how we came up with Why Ain't I Running? Uh, just a, a song for her and him falling in love with her when he didn't think he would be falling in love with anybody. Wow. Matt, did you expect that to be the backstory? I did not. I did not. So you were the one who brought them together. That's awesome. Yeah. And uh, fate. <laughs> yeah, the only person that might not be happy is the ex-wife in Oklahoma. But, right. Yeah. Well, <laughs> uh, she's rich, so yeah, <laughs> maybe it helps. I don't know. But they seem like they're very happy, and it's just—it's kind of cool, you know. That uh, every time they're somewhere where I am, they always say, "Well, this is the guy who got us together," and hmm. who knew? <laughs> yeah, that's that's pretty cool. Um, are you um, so when when you write like by yourself? Do you get though like uh, a phrase that comes with the melody, like the lyrics and the melody come together, or do you write a tune and then you try to put words? How does that process work? Well, it's interesting. I uh, I'll take them any way they come. Is what I tell people. Mm-hmm. But uh, what I've been doing lately in the last two or three albums that I've done, it's a kind of different way of doing it. Because when you get together to write with other you're kind of under the gun of a time pressure. You know, you're there that day and you know what you're there for. But what I started doing is just going, I, I keep books and books full of ideas and titles and all that. So I'll go through a book and I'll find a title that I like. And one of them would be an example. I wrote a song about Bob Dylan called The Footsteps of Dylan and everybody that's been inspired by him. So I just wrote that title up at the top of the page and didn't really think anything more, even try to work on it that day. But every time on that page and then the page was full, I thought, well, let me see if I've got a song there. So I started putting the lyrics together, and then the music kind of came to my head. It was I was reading the lyrics on how it should lay. And so I've had 
really good luck lately doing that. And that's kind of how this whole album about From the Beatles to the Bluebird Cafe came about. I just uh, would start with a title and just let it sit there for a while and think about it. And then music would come to me or the lyrics would come to me. And like there was a couple songs I wanted to honor the Beatles about. So, of course, of the music, I wanted it to be a little Beatle-y. And so that helped as far as when I was writing the lyrics to kind of get an idea of how the, uh, the music would lay with the lyrics. And um, it's just a, it's a fascinating thing because, you know, you can be walking your dog and a whole song will come up. You can be working on a song for six months, and it never seems like you're getting it where you want it. So, uh, it always—it still fascinates me, writing songs all the time. Do you have a favorite song of all the ones you've written? You know, it would have to be "If Tomorrow Never Comes" uh, for a number of reasons. One, uh, it was kind of like the song that I always prayed that I'd be able to write that would touch people all around the world, and. Um, then it means a lot because uh, I kind of wrote it and, and it ended up being my story with my late wife. And then the other thing that's so cool to me, that's not all that easy to do in the music business these days. Sometimes you can write a number one song with somebody and you never hear from them again. So mm-hmm. the fact that after all this time, we're still friends, we still talk, we still write together, uh, you know, that means a lot to me. So uh, I think it has to be if tomorrow never comes. I'm curious about that song. Um, so, how different is your first version of that than what you know compared to what we hear? You know, the crazy thing about Garth is the work tape that we did is so close to the recorded version of it. Hmm. And I think a lot of that is Alan Reynolds was such an amazing producer who did all the the first Garth albums. And he knows how to make something be little and big at the same time, acoustic and electric at the same time, but without getting in the way of everything. Right. And so that song, pretty much how you hear it on a on a work tape. In fact, I've got it on one of my records, me and Garth, where we just did it at the Bluebird. And it's me and him doing a duet of it. And it's like the record, except there was more stuff on the record. And it was kind of the same thing when we demoed Ain't Going Down Till the Sun Comes Up at my house. It was just me and him. I played guitar. I had a drum machine going, and he sang it. And I go back and I listen to it, and I go, that's the record. They just put more instruments on it. (laughs) But he's got the act of hearing how things should be right from the very beginning but not letting it change what the magic that was there at the very beginning. Hmm. And, um, you know, it's like after we wrote If Tomorrow Never Comes, when he left that day, I thought, this guy's 25 going on 50. Yeah. And he really has that kind, you know, he's, he's probably one of the best writers I've ever worked with, but he also has a vision right from the very beginning of how things should be. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's scary, like you'll write a song with him and he'll go, well, that that'll be on my third album. And you're thinking, well, you don't have even have a record deal yet. And then the third <laughs> album comes out and it's on the record. And it's like, how's it do that? I don't know. Uh, so have you been back to Woodstock recently? You know, Cindy and I went back, um, I guess it was probably 2016 or 2017. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't been back 
in 20 years and she had never been there but she wanted to go see where i was raised up and yeah. we had the best time and she rented um a little i guess it was a wasn't a bed and breakfast it's more like a little motel because there's really not much in woodstock for people to stay at right. but she got this place and it was right by this stream where i used to s swim as a kid and so the minute we got there and pulled up i went god i remember being here and it was like all of a sudden i was five years old again and it was just kind of magic that that's where we ended up staying and uh we were supposed to go back in 2021 and um COVID, of course it changed everything where you could fly into where you could get an uber sure uh where you could rent things and so we just kind of decided well we'll wait till um, things open up again so we'll probably go back in the next year or two because it was just a such a one to show her where i was from and all the places that meant something to me and um just it's a it's a great little town you know it's still only about maybe 1500 people yeah and, yeah i grew up in that area uh i grew yeah. up in the hudson valley <clears throat> and, yep. and you know what i'm talking about and we kind of what we did was she uh surprised me one of my favorite guitar players is Sonny Landreth, who's an amazing slide guitar player, mm -hmm. who he played with John Hyatt for a long time. And so they were doing a 20-year reunion up in Albany. And okay. so she bought me Christmas presents of them playing together. So we kind of made it a Hudson Valley trip. We flew into New York City and took the train up to Albany. And then we rented a car in Albany and drove through the Hudson River Valley mm -hmm. down into Woodstock. It was just, it was a magical trip. Yeah. It's so really nice up there. I'm not too yes. far from there right now. I'm actually in the Poconos, and uh, that's not... yeah, it's like two hours away, I think. So Poconos, the hot tubs that are heart shaped. Yeah, yeah. I think there's only one place left that has those. <laughs> yeah, that was a big thing for a while, but uh... yeah, beautiful Mount Airy Lodge. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> Good for you. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, and then I was I uh, lived down in the Lexington area. In fact, I just moved from there not too long ago. So uh, it's kind of weird how you know. Yeah. I've been following you around or whatever. So. What? Nashville. <laughs> uh, I have not made it to Nashville yet, but it's on my list. Oh, good. Well, let me know when you're coming. You know, Lexington. Uh, I haven't been back in a while because I don't really have any family there or anything anymore. But when I would, I, I don't even recognize that it. it's changed so much. You know, it was kind of a Mayberry town when I was there. And now it's a big thriving oh, metropolis yeah. like Nashville, Tennessee. I don't recognize Nashville driving around. There's so much <laughs> construction going on and new places that weren't there a month ago. And it's pretty wild, you know, when you got 100 people a day moving in for five years it starts changing things yeah for sure but you know there's something in the air and in, in nashville that's a creative energy that i don't feel anywhere else that i go and it's very interesting and i think a lot of people feel the same way i don't know if it's native american energy or what it is but uh it's it's still got that magic to it all right cat uh give you more time for one more question before we let kent go Oh my goodness! Well, I have you know like so many, but uh, well, we right. can do it again, you know. That'd be awesome. Yeah. I'll get we, you a copy of my new record when I get it. All right, cool. That would be great. 
Well, my question is going to be about Steve Allen because you um, you say or compare like uh, riding with someone for the first time like a first date. So, like you just don't know if it's gonna, you know, how it's gonna go. Right. So, um, Steve Allen worked with you on um, your album that you released last year, I think, um, for the birds. Is that? So what was it like when you first met? Like, you know, is it like a date? Is it love at first sight? Or, you know, I mean, do you know immediately, like, this is... Well, it was, this is really a weird, interesting story, but um, I go walk at this place with my dog every day that's not very far from here. Um, I can't say the name of it, because then everybody will show up, and there's already too many people (laughs) there, but um, it's just, it's my sanctuary. I call it my church, and... So I've got these two dogs, and one's a little white mutt. And uh, so I was walking there one day, and this guy was walking. He stole my dog. <laughs> well, rescue that could he could be your dog. I don't know. I mean, we've had him ten years, and he said, "No, no, he just looks just like my dog Sparky." And and so uh, we're talking, and out there, nobody really tells anybody else their name or whatever, because they're just out there to take in nature and I would see him every once in a while and we'd joke he'd go hey you got my dog yeah I know I know you want him and uh so then he disappeared for about six or eight months and um when I saw him he looked really bad and I said well, where you been he said well my wife's been dying and so I'm just now getting out again and I said well wh- what happened and he said well she had a brain tumor and I said my wife had a brain tumor too and I said if there's anything I can do to help you or whatever, let me know. And uh, he said, no, no, I'm all right. And so every once in a while I'd run into him, still didn't know his name. And I said, well, what's your name anyway? He said, Steve Allen. And I said, what do you do? And he said, I'm a guitar player. And I said, I'm Blazy, I'm a guitar player. And he didn't know who I was. And he's more of a rock and roll. So I said, well, we ought to write together. And uh, will you join my band? And so the first thing he did was join my band and we kind of went out and started touring around and he's such an easy guy, fun guy to be with. And I said, well, let's write some songs. And so uh, the first song we got together to write was about lives and moving on to we're very fortunate. We both have a new amazing lives. And so it was kind of a song about that. Um, called thanks to you and that ended up being the first song on the authentic record and it was such a fun time writing that we just would get together every once in a while and write songs and then i found this like five minutes away from me and so <laughs> COVID hit uh, of course we couldn't write with anybody everybody canceled everything and so i said well why don't you just come over and you sit outside i'll sit inside and we'll start writing some songs and so he came over and we started doing that and um then it got where we could both wear a mask and be inside and be six feet apart and then it got where we could be six feet apart but all this time we were writing songs so the last record that we did was all songs that we wrote together and the experience of, of turning you know something that was not really a a fun thing into something that was at least creative for us and being able to put out a record about that. So that's how the last record came out uh, for the birds. So all interesting. 
Wow, you have such great backstories. We definitely hit the jackpot to have you as a guest today. <laughs> Thank you. I do feel very lucky about that. And, you know, it's the cool thing is when I go do these songwriting, even stuff with my band, when I do a band show, I talk about the songs, too, before I play them. And it's kind of cool. And then the band plays them, which makes them sound a little different than just the songwriters singing them. But um, I'm so lucky that so many of them have so many great stories behind them and uh i love talking about it because people love to know where the idea came from and how the song got developed of course and where can everyone find uh, because it's coming out very shortly um from the beatles to the bluebirds where can uh, fans get that well most every record i've done so far has been with c baby that sends, sends it to iTunes and Amazon, Spotify, uh, YouTube. But now, this time, I'm going with TuneCore. I haven't really known how it works yet, but I'm going to find out. So TuneCore is one place. Then that'll be on uh, every site you can think of, because that's what you got to do these days. And then if somebody sends me uh, an email at tempblazy.com, if they want a hard copy of it, I can also get that to them, you know, autograph it and send it to them. And so those are basically the places. Well, I want to thank you so much for being our guest today. And I do hope you'll come back again. And really well, I will. I'll send you the new record and we can talk about that. And I just appreciate you two asked. <laughs> we, well, you know, we saw your saw your name and some of the people that you worked with and it was like oh yeah we got to have this guy on so we're honored to have yeah no idea the great great backstories like i i had no idea these would be the way the songs went so it's uh it's really interesting you are amazing i just uh i don't know it's uh like you said i'm a lucky man and i know it there's a song in that, I hear. <laughs> I, I think I kind of got that on the new record, so you'll hear it when you, when uh, you hear it. Oh, that's where that was. <laughs> All right. Kent, thank you so much. We're uh, going to let you go. Uh, really appreciate your time. Thank you for what you guys do. Thank you, sir. Uh-huh. Have a great one. You too. Take care. As always, if you have any questions, concerns, or comments, you can send those to cat at iwriteplays at outlook.com or you can write to me at backstorysessions at gmail.com or matt at level11ventures.com. Thanks for listening and we'll talk to you soon. Take care.